if we had church last Sunday and we didn't, although I heard that several people came, um, uh, they didn't notice their email, so uh, please, please, if you're not on the database list, if you haven't turned in an email uh, address, please do that. Uh, because that way you'll be notified if we have to cancel a service. But if we had had church, I was going to share something that was shared with me uh, from one of our congregants. I found it interesting. I heard about a husband and wife that were Christmas shopping at a large and crowded shopping mall. And uh, the wife was very busy uh, searching for certain gifts. And suddenly she turned around and she noticed that her husband was missing. Uh, She had no idea where he might be, so she decided to call him on his cell phone. And he answered, and she said, "Uh, Where are you? We have a lot of shopping to do. Where are you? Her husband responded, "Uh, Do you remember that jewelry store that we visited about 10 years ago? And remember that beautiful diamond necklace we found there that you just loved? And we couldn't afford it at the time. But I promised you that someday I would buy you that necklace. Do you remember that? And there was some silence as she was becoming emotional and tearing up. And she said, yes, yes, I do remember that necklace. And I do remember that jewelry store. Her husband said, that's great. You remember that jewelry store. Well, I'm in the gun store next to that. I know that would never happen here, never. Anyway, all right, because it's a holiday weekend, this is not a sermon per se, so um, do not grade me on this. Uh, This is just going to be a fun exercise. I reached back many years ago and found this and decided to redo it. I just thought it would be a fun thing to do. So uh, this morning we're going to itemize 26 specific events that occurred during the life of Jesus. Each of these 26 events are recorded in the four Gospels and are listed on the note sheet in both an alphabetical and chronological order. Chronological meaning the actual sequential order, uh, those events occurred in time. Now this is an interactive message. Uh, we're, we're going to participate. And if we all participate in this learning exercise, then after we're finished, we should be able to actually remember all 26 events. Should be able to remember, I hope. Now, notice there are three columns on the note sheet. Uh, on the left, the first column, there is the actual event itself. Uh, then the second column, there is the biblical text and or text that describes that event. And then the third column is the geographical location of that event. So the event, the biblical text, and then the geographical location. Let's start at the letter A. A represents angels. Angels. Remember, angels are genderless beings, but manifest themselves to humans as males. Contrary to popular culture, there are no female angels. Oh, but she's such an angel. No, she's actually not. Um, She's probably sweet, but she's not an angel. 
the word angel means messenger. Messenger. Angels are messengers. And so different angels brought messages to different people in the past about Jesus' birth. In Matthew chapter 1, an anonymous angel came to Joseph in a dream and explained Mary's unexpected pregnancy and announced to him, because he was so confused, she's pregnant, and he doesn't know how that happened. And so Jesus explained that, this angel explained that, and announced to him that uh, she would mother the promised Messiah, and she would name him Jesus, or Yeshua. Then the angel Gabriel revealed himself to Mary and announced she would be the mother of the promised Messiah. And then almost immediately after Jesus was born, a multitude of angels announced his birth to some shepherds on the Bethlehem hillside. So A represents angels and those angels' announcement. B represents birth. Birth, meaning Jesus' actual birth. God the Son became human through the birth of Jesus. According to statistical research conducted just this past September, and I found this uh, startling, less than one half of the generic population, 41% to be precise, less than one half of the population as a whole, and just 63% of professing Christians don't believe, don't believe that Jesus existed before his birth in Bethlehem. That is a huge error, because Jesus is the eternal God. He has always existed as a second member of the triune Godhead. Jesus did not originate at Bethlehem. Jesus originated as God from the eternal past. Jesus, before Bethlehem, Jesus existed as a spirit being. But at Bethlehem, Jesus was born into a human form. We call that birth his incarnation. Incarnation. Someone said incarnation means Jesus was God in a bod. Jesus was God in a bot because the word incarnation means enfleshment or embodied in human form and flesh. The word incarnation is an interesting word. Most people have eaten chili con carne. Chili con carne means chili that contains carne. Carne is a Latin word that means flesh or meat. So chili con carne is chili that contains chilies and beans in addition to pieces of meat. And then there is a carnivore. A carnivore is an animal or plant or even a fungi that eats flesh. So the incarnation means that Jesus as God became human flesh and human form through his birth at Bethlehem. I might mention the Book of Mormon teaches that Jesus was born at Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. And that's just one of the historical inaccuracies found in the Book of Mormon. The Bible contains more than 5,000 ancient places, people, and events that have been substantiated to be authentic from historians and archaeologists. The Book of Mormon? Not so much. A, B, C. C represents carpenter. Carpenter. Jesus became, as an adult, a carpenter. Remember, Jesus was born from a virgin. 
And that meant he did not have a human biological father. The egg from Mary's ovaries did not make contact with sperm from a male human biological donor. After Jesus' birth, though, Joseph consummated his marriage to his mother, and through doing that, Joseph became Jesus' legal stepfather. It was the custom in ancient Jewish culture that a son learned his father's trade. The Bible specifically states that Joseph was a carpenter. So because of that ancient custom, Jesus learned to be a carpenter from his stepfather. He was his stepfather's apprentice. Mark 6 verse 3 confirms that Jesus was a carpenter. Some of us have seen the bumper sticker that reads, My boss is a Jewish carpenter. And then there's Josh McDowell's famous book on apologetics that I suggest all people read called More Than a Carpenter. More than a carpenter, meaning Jesus was a carpenter, but he was more than that. He was God in actual human form and the Savior of humanity. A, B, C, D. D represents dove. A dove. This dove is a reference to Jesus' baptism. His baptism. Because at that baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Each of the three members of the triune Godhead were present at Jesus' baptism. Jesus, as God the Son, was himself standing in the Jordan River. God the Father was speaking from heaven, commending his Son because he was being baptized. And then God the Holy Spirit descended from heaven on him like a dove. Question, if the Holy Spirit wanted to manifest himself in the form of a bird... Why would he select a dove and not something else? Why wouldn't he manifest himself as a more majestic bird, such as the bald eagle? One reason that has been suggested is that doves are monogamous birds, meaning doves mate for life, and so doves represent a sense of moral purity. I'm not sure if that's the reason or not. But ever since Jesus' baptism, Christians have used the dove as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. A, B, C, D, E. E represents enemy. Enemy. Jesus' enemy was, and still is, Satan. Satan himself. The Bible teaches that after Jesus' baptism, Jesus then went into a remote wilderness area in South Judea. And there Satan met him and tempted him and tried unsuccessfully to get him to commit sin. The question that has been debated throughout the centuries is this. Could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? We understand that Jesus did not sin. He was sinless. But the question theologians have contested is, could Jesus have sinned? Meaning, did he have the potential to commit sin? There are two possible positions on the answer to this question. One is that Jesus did not sin because he could not sin. Jesus did not sin because he could not sin. It would be impossible for him to sin. The second position is that Jesus could have sinned, but he willed himself not to sin. Jesus could have sinned. There was potential to commit sin there, but he willed himself and determined not to sin. So those are the two positions. 
We're not going to get into all the theological ramifications of that question, but I believe that Jesus did not sin because Jesus could not sin. I believe there was no potential for him to sin. Jesus could not sin, and Jesus could not sin because Jesus was God, and God cannot sin. Edward Erwin Lutzer, former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago and prolific author, I love his stuff, said, quote, It would have been impossible for Jesus' humanity to sin without his deity being involved. So he never sinned. He couldn't sin. A, B, C, D, E, F. F represents followers. Followers, those closest followers to Jesus, were called his apostles. Jesus assigned 12 men, 12 specific men, to become his apostles. And those men um, were special and close to him more than anyone else. The word apostle means sent one, or one that is sent. Jesus selected 12 men and then sent them out. On, a, on strategic missions to represent himself. Those apostles acted as his representatives or his proxies. We might use that word now. A, B, C, D, E, F. Now let's do this. We're going to, at uh, periodic times throughout, we're going to review what we've learned. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the letter of the alphabet and you're going to audibly tell me what that letter represents. For example, A, I'll say A, and you respond, angels. So we're just, we're going to do that, okay? Now, uh, I don't want you to be bashful, and I know some of you are going to cheat, and you're going to look at your notes. I know that. <laughs> Half the first service cheated. It was embarrassing. But let's see what we can remember, okay? A, angels. A uh, little, little better than that. A, angels. Good. B, Earth. C, D, E, F, Good job. Okay. The next letter is G. G represents guest. Guest. Jesus accepted an invitation to be a guest at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That wedding reception was the site of Jesus' first recorded miracle. And that miracle consisted of turning some water into wine. Now, it has long been contested and argued, did the wine Jesus created at that reception contain actual alcohol? I'm not an expert on this. Um, I, I believe there was actual fermentation in that liquid. There was actual alcoholic content. But according to the ancient laws of fermentation, it could have been, could have been, so diluted with water that it would now be considered a sub-alcoholic beverage. But no one actually knows. No one knows. None of us were there. It isn't recorded. So whatever Jesus made, I'm sure it was the, the good stuff. Okay? Uh, G, guest. H represents house cleaning. House cleaning. Now this is a reference to Jesus cleaning or cleansing the house of God. And that house was the Jerusalem temple. That was still erect at that time. Historians record that at this time, serious corruption existed in and around the Jerusalem temple. Let me explain that. The outer court of the temple area had deteriorated so that during the time of Jesus, it was used as a religious marketplace. 
and operated under the auspices of the Jewish high priest named Annas. I have to be careful I don't mispronounce that name. His name is Annas. Annas. I'm sorry. Uh, it is said that Annas was a corrupt man who considered the temple and his exalted position as high priest as a means to accumulating personal power and riches. So much so that the business enterprises in that outer court, also called the court of the Gentiles, came to be known as the Bazaar of Annas. Merchants had to actually purchase rights from Annas to be able to set up a booth and sell their merchandise there. Those merchants sold sacrificial animals and wine and oil and salt to the people that had come to worship at the temple. Those merchants also bought the right to be able to exchange the people's money into the correct currency and denominations that were required in the temple offerings. In addition to the franchise fees paid to the high priest Annas, those temple operators were also required to pay a certain percentage of their profits to Annas. That means Annas basically got a piece of everything. It's interesting that according to the Levitical law, any animal someone brought to the temple as a potential sacrifice, any animal that the priest would accept could be offered as a temple sacrifice. But, and here's more corruption, the chief priest under the direction of Annas made certain that those animals that were not bought, not bought in one of the temple concessions from one of the merchants there, that animal was judged unacceptable to be sacrificed. That meant no one would be able to bring his own sacrificial animal, no matter how perfect that animal was, it wouldn't matter. Because of Anna's crooked system, it would be rejected. So the people had no option except to purchase their sacrificial animals from one of those concessionaries, and those concessionaries charged hyper-inflated prices for their animals. The Christian, the Jewish Christian historian Alfred Edersheim said that often those merchants would charge as much as ten times what an animal would normally cost. Those temple merchants were extorting money from the people in charging them outrageous prices on sacrificial animals and wine and oil and salt. But if that wasn't enough, if people needed to exchange foreign currency or have their money converted into the exact amount needed to give to a temple cause, then they were charged, get this, charged a 25% exchange fee. That's more extortion. See, the problem wasn't selling the sacrificial animals, if that had been fairly applied to people, permitting some that had a perfect animal, to offer it and others that didn't have an animal to purchase one that's not the problem it wasn't a problem to exchange money into the correct currency needed for the temple offerings that wasn't a problem the problem was the hyper inflated prices these merchants would charge it was extortion that's the reason Jesus referred to this temple's outer court area as a den of thieves 
a den of thieves because those concessionaries were essentially stealing from the common people. That angered Jesus so much, he cleansed the temple. One author described it like this, without warning and without resistance, Jesus cast out the merchants and overturned the tables of the money changers before the thousands of worshipers, the bewildered merchants, and the priests who happened to be present. Jesus made a shambles of the bazaar and declared the shame of those who profited from it. The whole arena was in confusion and disarray with animals running loose, doves flying around, and money of all kinds rolling across the courtyard. That's what happened. So H stands for house cleaning. I, I represents interview. Interview. A man named Nicodemus went to interview Jesus at night. Some jokester said Nicodemus is the only Irishman mentioned in Scripture. Nick Odemus, he said, was his name. I need help with material, really. If you got, I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm desperate up here, all right? The basic gist of that Nicodemus interview is summarized in the statement Jesus made to Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. Someone said to me once, I'm a Christian, but just not the born-again kind. That's the same as saying, I believe in circles, just not round ones. Understand something, all circles are round and all Christians have been born again. To be born again, the theological word, biblical word is regenerated. To be born again, to be born a second time, to experience another birth, means that just as someone is born the first time in a normal sense, at someone's salvation, someone is born a second time in a spiritual sense. At someone's first birth, he is born into a human, uh, normal, well, I don't know about normal, born into a human family. <laughs> I'm convinced no one's normal. Uh, there's a book out called Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. Um, <laughs> at someone's first birth, he is born into a human family. And then at someone's second birth, he is born into a spiritual family, meaning at someone's rebirth, God becomes his spiritual father, and he becomes one of God's spiritual children. So Nicodemus needed to be born a second time, as all people do. The next letter is J. J represents Jacob's well. Jacob's well was located at Shikar in Samaria. Jesus stopped at this particular well, and he met a woman there, a woman that had come to draw water, from Samaria. Now, under normal conditions, most Jewish males would not have spoken to this woman, because according to ancient Judaism, she was considered a social and religious outcast. The Samaritans were a genetic result from Jewish and Gentile intermarriage. I need to interject a footnote here. We use the term race and racial and racist all the time because those words are used throughout the media and in academic conversation. In a technical and biblical sense, please understand there's only one race 
It's called the human race. Now, there are people groups and there are ethnic groups. We understand that. But there's just one race, the human race, and there's no such thing then as interracial marriage. It's still one human that's married to another human. Understand we're all homo sapiens. We have all been created imago Dei and the image of God. So this is foolishness, unbelievable foolishness. This is racism on steroids. The Samaritans were a genetic result from Jewish people and Gentile people intermarrying, producing these children, and both of these groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, despised the Samaritan people. The Jewish rabbis taught that social interaction with the Samaritans constituted spiritual defilement. So the Jews avoided Samaritans. Under normal conditions, in addition to that, no rabbi would speak to a woman, especially if she were the only person present. Rabbis perceived women to be a source of spiritual temptation and contamination. Um, women in ancient Jewish culture did not have the elevated status as women do now. Understand that Jesus was himself a recognized Jewish rabbi. And rabbinical literature indicates that if a rabbi were walking down the street and he saw a woman approaching, he would cross to the other side of the street until she passed. That means according to Jewish societal custom, Jesus should not have spoken to this Samaritan woman. He should have ignored her. But Jesus made a radical countercultural maneuver and he spoke extensively to this woman. That's because Jesus refused to discriminate because of someone's race or gender. Jesus was not a respecter of persons and neither should we be. The next letter is K. K represents kindred. Kindred meaning Jesus' kindred or Jesus' relatives. Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth and presented himself as the Messiah to his relatives. His mother believed in him, but his half-brothers and half-sisters did not accept his claim to be the promised Messiah. I have to add an important footnote. The Catholic Church, our friends across the parking lot, the Catholic Church teaches that the mother of Jesus was a perpetual virgin. That's one of the cardinal doctrines of Catholicism. A perpetual virgin meant she remained a virgin after Jesus' birth. According to Catholicism, after Jesus' birth, she married Joseph, but she and Joseph did not did not consummate that marriage through this sexual union. So she remained a perpetual virgin. That would be a strange marriage. But that's a problem because the New Testament teaches the two of them, both Joseph and Mary, did engage in sexual relations because it actually names the children that Joseph and Mary had together after Jesus was born. Matthew 13, verse 55, mentions four of his half-brothers by name and also mentions he had sisters, plural, sisters, meaning he had more than one half-sister. Some of us might remember the religious artifact that was discovered in Jerusalem in 2002 called the Ossuary of James. 
ossuary of James. It wasn't discovered in an archaeological dig, as most artifacts are, but it was found in the possession of a private collector that had bought it at an antiquities market. Ossuaries were small boxes made from stone, most often, that contained the bones of someone that had died. Someone's bones were placed in these small boxes. This one has been dated from the first century AD and was supposed to have contained the bones of the half-brother of Jesus named James. On the outside of this box is an inscription in Aramaic that reads, quote, James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. It has proven to be an extremely controversial find. The Israeli Antiquities Authority believes it's probably a modern forgery. But numerous, numerous other researchers and historical experts are convinced it's a legitimate artifact. Now, no one can be certain. No one should be dogmatic about this. But if this ossuary is the genuine article... That presents a serious problem to the Catholic Church because Catholicism teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin and did not have other children from Joseph. I've never been able to understand how Catholicism could possibly teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin in direct contradiction to the unmistakable statements from Scripture that indicate just the opposite. But then I recently read an explanation from a Catholic apologist, and now I fully understand. He said this, The reason Jesus had half-brothers and sisters is not, is not because Joseph and Mary had children together after Jesus was born. No, but because they were stepbrothers and sisters, meaning they were Joseph's children from a previous marriage. If you actually believe that argument, then I have some excellent oceanfront property to sell you in Death Valley. That's insulting, insulting to the normal person's intelligence. That's nuts. Jesus had siblings. His parents did consummate that marriage after his birth and had children of their own. And those children became his half-brothers and sisters. So Jesus had siblings. But those siblings did not at the beginning, did not accept him. And from a human perspective, it's understandable how that could happen. Imagine being raised in the same household. Question, how would you like to have a totally sinless big brother? Someone who always put up his toys and always put away his sandals, always did what he was told to do. Nothing could ever be his fault because he's perfect. Someone said it seems almost miraculous his half-brothers and his sisters didn't have him crucified before the Jewish rulers did. I mean, there's some serious sibling rivalry there. There is biblical evidence to indicate that his siblings did accept him after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 teaches that after his resurrection, Jesus revealed himself to his half-brother James. James must have accepted him at that point because James ultimately became the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. Um, he also was martyred for his faith. And most theologians believe he authored the book of James. So K stands 
for kindred. L. L represents location. Jesus, at this juncture, changed his location. He set up his headquarters at Capernaum, probably at Simon Peter's house. And that would be his base of operations for the rest of his time on this earth. Now, let's review. Let's start at A. All right? Here we go. And if you want to cheat, you can. It's okay. A. B. C. D. E. F. G. Okay, we're kind of losing it here. Let's go. G. H. I. J. K. L. Can I tell you something? You know the hardest part of this for me is remembering the alphabet. That's the hardest part. M represents message. Message. This was Jesus' most famous message or sermon found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus gathered his disciples together and preached what is called the Sermon on the Mount. That sermon contains some incredible material. The Beatitudes, uh, the disciples' prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, on and on. And even contains what is most often called the golden rule. Matthew 7, verse 12. That golden rule is not he who has the gold rules or do unto others before they do it unto you. No, but Jesus said, therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Meaning we are to treat others as we would want to be treated ourselves. One of the most basic common sense moral ethics ever stated. All that's found in this famous sermon, this message on the mount. N. N represents nature. Nature. Nature describes the different miracles Jesus did in and around Capernaum and Galilee. An actual miracle is God upsetting the laws of nature, meaning God doing something that contradicts laws of nature. That would be miraculous. Someone has counted 37 different miracles that Jesus did during his time on earth. And those miracles range from stilling a hurricane force storm to finding tax monies in a fish's mouth to healing 10 lepers at a time to resurrecting people from the dead and on and on and on. But in represents nature because miracles upset the laws of nature. O represents opposition. Opposition. Jesus was opposed from the beginning. And that opposition climaxed at Capernaum because that's where the Pharisees, that religious sect, strict religious sect of Jewish men, those religious egotists, legalists, uh, jerks, where the Pharisees committed the unpardonable sin. Now don't miss this. The unpardonable sin was committed when those Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons through the assistance of Satan. It was the ultimate Flip Wilson comment. The devil made me do it. This was, that was a made-up, fraudulent accusation. 
Because Jesus exercised demons from people. Yes, he cast out demons. He did so, though, through the assistance of the Holy Spirit, not Satan. So the Pharisees accused Jesus of using Satan to do something that the Holy Spirit had actually done. That's the reason this unpardonable sin is also called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because he credited Satan for doing something the Holy Spirit had actually done through Jesus. And that accusation those men made was blasphemous. But that's part of the opposition and a climax there. P represents parables. <clears throat> parables. It's interesting Jesus only spoke one recorded parable before that unpardonable sin at Capernaum. Just one. And that was at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and that was the parable of the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Most of us remember that parable. Wise man built his house on the rock, foolish man built his hand on house on sand. It's interesting that all the rest of his recorded parables came after that unpardonable sin. Most commentators believe that altogether Jesus spoke 37, 38, or 39 parables. Those are the numbers most often mentioned, uh, contingent on what someone perceives to be a parable. Some people perceive something to be a parable, other people don't, so there is a diverse opinion on the exact number. Parables are basically defined as down-to-earth stories that have a spiritual meaning. So sometimes Jesus told stories in his sermons. And so there is a, a biblical basis for using stories and narrative and illustrations in sermonizing now. As long as we don't preach what is called skyscraper sermons. Story on top of story on top of story on top of story. No, there needs to be strong biblical content. Which is why this does not qualify as a sermon. Q is the next letter. Q represents question. Question. This is what... Most commentators feel is the big question. The big, big question. Jesus brought his disciples together and asked them this essential question. He said to them, Who am I? Tell me, who am I? Translated as, Who is Jesus? Was he just another prophet? Was he another religious teacher or some guru? guru? Simon Peter, of all people, had the right answer. He said that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word. It means Messiah. Most of us remember the movie from Mel Gibson, the blockbuster film, The Passion of the Christ. He could have entitled that The Passion of the Messiah. Same thing. Uh, the Messiah was that special ruler, God, anointed ruler, God promised his chosen people, the Jewish people. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And Simon Peter confessed that Jesus is the son of the living God. The son of God doesn't mean he's inferior to God. In the original language, the son of meant of the order of, of the same order and essence as God himself. So the son of God means that Jesus is equal to God. He is God. So the answer to this big question is that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah, and he is also God, actual God, divinity in human form. And that statement that addresses the correct identification of Jesus separates Christianity from all other religions and all other religious teaching. We are the only people 
and faith community that believes that. R means revelation. Revelation. And that's a partial revelation of what Jesus is like if we were to see him at this present moment in heaven. Jesus brought his inner circles of apostles. Jesus had three men he was closest to among his apostles, Peter, James, and John. He brought those three men up onto a high mountain and then momentarily transformed himself, meaning he changed himself into some of what he resembles now in heaven in his glorified form. His face was as bright as the sun and his clothes were as bright as brilliant light. That moment is referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus transfigured himself there. He momentarily changed himself there. And it is represented by the letter R. All right, let's review some more. Let's start at the beginning and uh, see what we can do. A. B. C. D. E. F. G. H. I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R. Okay. Some of you are actually not looking at your notes. I'm impressed. I'll call you this afternoon. See if you can still remember. S represents stoning. Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem to attend the annual Jewish Passover celebration. All Jewish males were required to attend that. His enemies found him there. And because he claimed to be God, remember, according to Mosaic law, uh, acts of blasphemy, uh, statements of blasphemy, were considered a capital offense. And according to Mosaic law, the person that committed those acts or those statements was to be executed. So Jesus claimed to be God because he claimed to be God's son, meaning he was equal with God. And these men felt that was a blasphemous accusation. God wouldn't become a man, although he did. And so these men accused him of blasphemy and felt that according to Mosaic law, they should execute him. And so uh, his enemies found him there in Jerusalem. And those men tried to stone him because of his claim to deity. But it wasn't his time. So Jesus vanished into thin air, and he escaped. T represents tomb. Tomb, and in particular, the tomb of Lazarus. In the week before his death, Jesus visited a suburb just east of Jerusalem called Bethany. He had a close friend there. His friend was named Lazarus. Lazarus had died four days earlier. Jesus went to the cemetery and stood at his tomb and he wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible is found in John 11, verse 35. It reads, Jesus wept. The Greek word translated as wept describes a quiet, controlled crying, not some form of uncontrollable emotional hysteria. And I have seen that at funerals. The Bible records three different instances where Jesus cried, and this was one of those. Jesus cried, and then resurrected Lazarus from the dead. 
It's interesting that Jesus broke up every funeral he ever attended. You represents upset. Upset. Jesus was upset again at the temple merchants. Those men returned to the temple and continued their merchandising and extortion tactics. Jesus found them and he was upset again. And so Jesus cleansed the temple a second time. V represents vision. Vision. This was a vision Jesus shared of the future. Jesus brought his disciples up on to the Mount of Olives and gave them a prophetical vision of the future. The prophetical signs that Jesus described are found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And sometime we will go through that entire text. Matthew 24 and 25. Those verses are part of what is called the Olivet Discourse. Because that discourse or address or sermon happened on the Mount of Olives. It is a phenomenal and frightening passage and it describes some of what will happen during the end times. W represents washing. Washing. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Now remember the night before his crucifixion, um, that afternoon, Jesus brought his disciples uh, into an upstairs room, a large upstairs room in Jerusalem. He brought them there so those men could eat the Passover meal together. But before that happened, before that meal, Jesus took a bowl, a large bowl full of water, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist. Jesus then knelt down and washed the feet of each of those disciples, 12 of them, in that upper room. And in doing that, he demonstrated humble servitude because on a normal basis, it was the lowest of the household servants that were assigned the job of washing the guest's feet. And Jesus assumed that position of the lowest of the low of the servants to do that. He was humble, a humble servant, washing. X <coughs> represents execution. <coughs> I understand. Uh, this is a literary license. I've been told that execution starts with an E, okay? <coughs> I know that. But X... <coughs> I don't know how else to do it. X represents Jesus' actual execution. <coughs> Jesus died like a common criminal, although he was innocent of committing a single crime. Pontius Pilate, the man that ordered Jesus' execution, remember he was the governor, <coughs> he had a bowl brought to him, he washed his hands of the matter, and he said publicly, he found no fault in Jesus. But he was afraid of the Jewish people uh, creating some sort of a insurrection or riot in Jerusalem, and then Caesar would hear about that, and uh, that would be bad for him. And so he caved to political pressure, and he ordered Jesus to be scourged and then executed. The fact Pontius Pilate put to death an innocent man haunted him to the point it contributed to his ultimately committing suicide. And most people don't know that. Jesus died between two common criminals on a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha that is still there. Jesus was executed as our substitute, uh, sacrificing himself for our sins on a cross. People sometimes ask me, 
about the morality of capital punishment. And I will address that in a sermon at some point. Um, I might add that not all evangelicals agree on the subject of capital punishment. Um, Charles Colson, uh, who spent time in prison for his crimes committed during the Watergate scandal, who became a committed evangelical, uh, an author, and lecturer, an amazing man. He started prison ministry fellowship in prisons throughout the U.S. Amazing man. He differed on this matter. His opinion was different than mine. Um, and maybe that's because of his time in prison. Um, I believe capital punishment is a concept that is taught in both Old and New Testaments and ought to be carefully, carefully, hyper-carefully, discreetly practiced even now. But think through this. If capital punishment had been banned during the first century, as we often do now in some states, if capital punishment had been banned in the first century A.D., then how could Jesus have become the Savior? Remember, Jesus was born to die. Let's review. A. B. C. D. E. F. G. H. I. J. K. Are we running out of steam, guys? Pick it up. Come on, let's go. Sheesh. This is a marathon, I know. I understand. You've hit the wall. I get it. I get it. Let's get your second win. L. Location. M. Message. N. Nature. O. Opposition. P. Parables. Q. Question. R. Revelation. S. Story. T. Two. U. B. Division. W. X. Execution. Good job. Two more. Y represents yes. Yes. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. And yes, Jesus is now alive. Yes. If Jesus is alive because of his resurrection from the dead, if Jesus were just a mere man, he would still be dead. But he was more than just a man. He was both man and God. And as God, he was able to cheat on death. Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most documented facts from human history. It is one of the things that convinced apologist Lee Strobel to come to faith. Josh McDowell, I mentioned him earlier, is a famous evangelical apologist. I might add his son, Sean McDowell, Ph.D., is now a famed apologist, ministering to younger generations. And uh, Josh has authored, imagine this, more than 150 books. And he has spoken on more college and university campuses than anyone in human history. He's been around. Once a student approached him and said, Mr. McDowell, because remember, prior to his conversion, he was an agnostic. He felt becoming a Christian was the same as committing intellectual suicide. He was very prejudiced against Christianity. Mr. McDowell, exactly what was it that ultimately convinced you to become a Christian? Josh responded, I became a Christian because I could not explain away 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And no open-minded person can. The evidence is overwhelming. Z represents Zion. And Zion is another name for Jerusalem because Jerusalem was actually built on a mountainous ridge called Zion. Zion, used here in our exercise, represents Jesus' ascension into heaven from the Mount of Olives located just east of Jerusalem or Zion. I should add, Jesus promised to return to the earth to the exact same location where he left the earth and that means he's going to descend from heaven, pass through the air in the northern part of Israel, where he defeats Antichrist forces at the Battle of Armageddon, and then he's scheduled to move on into Jerusalem and touch down on that same mountain of olives. That's the same mountain he ascended into heaven from. The moment Jesus touches down on that mountain, it triggers a massive earthquake that will be felt throughout Jerusalem, and Jesus will then proclaim himself as Messiah and will establish his messianic reign of peace and prosperity prosperity on this earth. Can't wait. All right, one final review. Let's see who the students are that excel. A. B. C. D. E. F. G. H. I. J. K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Good job, good job. Jesus is still a popular societal character, but not all claims to be Jesus represent the true Jesus. I've adapted and modified this from Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung is a brilliant um, academician, professor um, at Reformed Seminary and also pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. He said, there's the Republican Jesus. The Republican Jesus is against tax increases and activist judges and promotes traditional values and owning firearms. Then there's the Democrat Jesus. I kind of didn't know there was one, but I guess there is. Um, he's against the 1%. He wants bigger government. He wants to reduce our carbon footprint, and he wants to print more money. There's the therapist Jesus. He helps us cope with problems. He heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's the Starbucks Jesus. He drinks fair trade coffee, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's the open-minded Jesus. He loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who aren't as open-minded as he is. There's the touchdown Jesus. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher, and he determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's the martyr Jesus. He was a good man who died a cruel death so we could feel sorry for him. 
There's the gentle Jesus. He was meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walked around barefoot, wearing a sash. There's the hippie Jesus. He teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's the yuppie Jesus. He encourages us to maximize on our potential, invest in Bitcoin, and read self-help books. There's the spirituality Jesus. He hates organized religion and sound biblical doctrine and would rather have people outside in nature finding the God within themselves. There's the revolutionary Jesus. He teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's the guru Jesus. He's a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in us and helps us find our center. There's the boyfriend Jesus. He wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love. There's the platitude Jesus. He's good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, superficial sermons, and inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's the good example Jesus. He shows us how to be compassionate, how to solve the climate change crisis, and become a better person. There's the woke Jesus. He's a political progressive and blames all societal problems on white supremacy and fights for perceived justice and equity. And then, then there's Jesus the Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, and the Son of God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi. He was the son of David from Abraham's chosen seed. He was the one to deliver us from spiritual bondage. The ultimate end of the Mosaic law. Yahweh in human flesh. The one to establish God's rule and reign throughout the universe. And the one who is the undisputed King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus is not a reflection of the current cultural mood or the projection of our own desires. He is both Lord and God. He was the Lamb of God, the substitute for our sins, and the Savior of humanity. He's more loving, more holy, and still more terrifying than we ever thought possible. People, that's Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this time we could just spend a little overview discussing your son apart from Jesus we are nothing we have nothing we can do nothing our existence would be meaningless our future would be damned I'm so grateful dear father in heaven that you gave your son Jesus that he would come to this earth that he would be born of a virgin that he would live a sinless perfect life that he would go to a cross and on that cross accumulate our sins and suffer the justice and judgment of God for our sins, be punished for our sins, be buried in a grave, but then resurrected from the dead and then ascend into heaven where he is right now and then invites each of us to join him, to experience him, to repent from our sin to invite Him into our lives by faith and faith alone and experience true salvation. I am so grateful for that. Thank you for your Son and all that He means to us and help us in 2022 
to put him first. And I pray and I ask it in his special name. Amen.